Hello everyone, my name is Rochelle Innocent and I'm the founder and CEO of Project Purpose. Welcome to our YouTube channel. Our community is focused on fostering the intellectual and character development in children. We do that through our parent-child workshops that focus on four themes, autonomy, self-efficacy, compassion, and self-concept in order to cultivate grit, perseverance, and resilience in each child. At Project Purpose, our overarching mandate is to renew and rebuild families, communities, and relationships. Our YouTube platform provides us with an opportunity to have discussions on all topics that relate to families, communities, and relationships with ourselves as well as with others, with a primary focus on mental health and education. More precisely, the way the institutions of mental health and education have played a role and are currently playing a role in our societies at large. Our discussions and debates provide us an opportunity to think critically about what needs to change within these structures in order for us to live up to our bold slogan, support, protect, and empower each child through youth-focused development, better known as leadership in juvenescence. We also recognize that in valuing our children's leadership potential, that also translates as co-creating and recreating our environments, socially as well as politically, in order for our children to thrive. As is the YouTube convention, please do subscribe, hit that post notification bell so that you're aware of every time we post, and of course, if you like the content and you want to keep the conversation going, like, comment, and share this video. Let's get into it. Hi everyone, so this video is part two to our series on education this week. As I mentioned during, I believe, the last of the foundational videos, and I also mentioned it in the videos that I put, posted last week on mental wellness is this platform talks on topics that relate to three specific streams. So we're gonna talk on mental wellness, education, as well as mental health. And I'm going to try to cover two topics a week in two videos each week that range across those themes. So last week I covered mental wellness and this week we're talking about education. Now this is part two of our series on education and part one was really me trying to provide a baseline understanding of the environment that forms the foundation of why compulsory education is even a thing. And education prior to the Cold Revolution was a privilege and it was something that only those who, you know, came from the elite, the aristocratic class had access to. And those people had access to education that really was focused on the intellectual and character development of each child and focus on building that critical thinking lens to allow children the opportunity and the toolkit to interact and engage with the environment around them. And with mass education, that began to change. So, so this is a quick synopsis, but please do feel free to watch that first video so that you can do a deeper dive with me on the foundations of compulsory education. And this is a continuation of that. And so with the continuation, what I'm hoping to accomplish is, is just to speak about the evolution of education within the context of the social and political climate of that time. And I think that it's important because we often like to distill topics into silos when life is very rarely that way. A lot of the time, things that happen in life, they happen, it, you know, it's an intermix of different themes of different, you know, events in history together that form some of what, you know, is 
the norm in our present day society. So I think it's important when we think about education and what education was built to serve, we need to think about the climate that birthed the requirement of compulsory schooling. And I want to continue on that topic. Um, so before digging into the details, I do also want to preface that these are my opinions. That you know, This channel is me sharing my opinions, my points of view on what needs to change in education. And of course, I want to have debates. I want to have critical discussions. And if you disagree, I want to hear from you. I want to hear why you disagree. You know, let's have an interaction. This is a back and forth. Um, so feel free to engage with me in the comments, send me an email, interact with me and let me know whether you agree, whether you disagree, and let's keep the conversation going. And then together, collaboratively, collectively, let's work towards recreating something beautiful and is a byproduct of all of our thinking. It's interesting. It's interesting that I've taken on the torch of, of school reform. And I think it's interesting specifically because notably, when you look at history and the individuals who took a stake in school reform, a lot of them were, since Plato, actually, specifically since Plato, a lot of them were childless, wifeless men, um, which I thought was kind of funny because I'm not a man. I mean, I'm childless, but the biological clock is ticking. Sorry, sorry, corny joke. I can't help myself. But I thought it was, I thought it was kind of a funny tidbit to share as I was like delving into the history of you know, the, the founding fathers of education. There's no founding mother of education, you know? And I think that that needs to change. Uh, I don't want to be necessarily the founding mother of education, but I like that now in 2021, we have a little bit of diversity on that platform of, you know, school reform. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the American dream and what sort of was the pull to America. So a lot of the reasons why, you know, immigration to Canada in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s was so prevalent was because it was like the first, it was the first time in history where people had an opportunity to build a name for themselves, to kind of climb out of their social ranking and, you know, live freely, autonomously and, you know, build their own path. And that, ended with the coal revolution and and no one talks about when it ended everyone is still those who immigrate to america don't immigrate to you know america because of what we see and experience in the news today it's because there's still sort of this whimsical ideology about this american dream and i'm here to crush the dream i'm sorry but the dream ended during the coal revolution someone had to say it might as well be me I guess I could say, and it would be a strong position, is that compulsory schooling, you know, forced education is one of the first signals of that dream dwindling away, maybe being flushed down the toilet. And why do I say that? Um, I say that because with the introduction of compulsory education that kind of coincided with the boom of factory work and mining work, it also led to the disenfranchisement of ordinary people. It led to the division of families also created wholesale dependencies where people initially were self-sufficient and were able to create you know products and services on their own and lastly the introduction of compulsory education grotesquely extended our concept of childhood uh, i think it's important to talk about that because before the coal revolution you know the american population 
people who moved to the Americas were largely into agriculture. It was an agricultural society. And if you were raised on a farm, or even if you take some time to observe some of the habits and rituals that coincide with being an effective and productive farm, is it creates specific behaviors and attitudes of resourcefulness, of self-reliance, and independence. And when we think about what was introduced with the government-mandated curriculum, it was cultivating a completely different character. And now I, I also invite you to read some of my blogs. So I did write a blog on the state of family where I discuss parents' patriae. And this is the way I enunciate it with Latin words. I know that you know there's a, there's a specific way of enunciating them. If I got it wrong, please do let me know. But with parents' patriae, I think it's very important that we delve into what that means. And parents, parents' patriae is essentially the government taking on the absolute power over the upbringing of our children. And that was introduced with compulsory schooling. Um, and, and there is this one case I came across in my research. I was reading The Underground History of American Education by John Cato. And he referenced this specific case um, in, I believe, 1840, it was a case between Merkine or Mersaine, I'm not really sure how to enunciate that, versus the people, where the, the winning argument in that case was essentially that the moment a child is born, it owes, it owes allegiance to the government of the country of its birth, um, and is also entitled to protection from that government. The evolution of society as a byproduct of, of, of mining, of factory working, of the coal revolution, and the effects that those revolutions had on family in and of itself. Families were, were being broken apart, addictions were being introduced into families, domestic abuse were being introduced into families, you know, great poverty was being experienced by families and you know children were working in factories um, and so with that dealing with that the government then decided to take on the absolute role of parent because most parents were being were considered as unfit and unfit because of the requirements of work that were forced upon them by the way and so absolute sovereignty was passed to the government, and then the government decided how much of that sovereignty they shared with parents based on its own convenience. And this is important because this parents' patriot is still in effect today. And I find that to be highly problematic, that a government, which is essentially meant to service its citizens, is taking on an authoritarian role over our children and also stipulating that our children are born under an obligation to said government that I thought was obliged to us. So let's just think about the roles of power when we philosophically think of government and the roles of power in reality, based on how the government has positioned itself in our societies today and within our families. So parents' patriae considers the political state as the primary father. And it also sort of demoted 
a parent's role as the legal guardian who had the legal duty of you know maintenance and education of their own children. That said, the absolute sovereignty may, remains with the government. I, I want to talk about this because this is problematic to me. This needs, when we think about the way that education needs to evolve moving forward, I think it needs to start with the family because education was built as a result of families being broken. And I think if we're looking to repair families, we also can recoup that sovereign power from the government. I can assume goodwill and that, you know, maybe members of the family were not in the best shape given the work conditions and some of how that, you know, translated into family dynamics. We're in better shape now. We no longer need the government to play parent to the way that we raise our children. And when you think about education and how it's evolved in North America, and I'll kind of lump Canada along with the states, and of course, for my global audience, please feel free to chime in and let me know if whether or not this resonates with you. But there are two classes of education, and, and we see this more so in urban areas. And in suburban areas, you know, the curriculums are fairly robust and they're, and they're fairly effective. I'll call them effective. If we're comparing them against some of the curriculum that is very diluted and watered down in urban areas, then suburban areas definitely have a much stronger curriculum, although all school curriculum, in my opinion, needs reform. Um, so anyways, there's two classes of curriculum. So the first class is, is true liberal education, so true understanding of literacies and subjects that allow someone to make kind of informed decisions to be a contributing citizen within their society. And then the second class of education, which is what the majority of the population is subjected to, less about various literacies and competencies and more about social efficiencies, more about social classification, of determining who fit where in order to be a unit of production in the industry that these students were going to transition into which means that the objective for these educational institutions that you know were less about liberal education and more about priming and conditioning students to be good workers in mass production environments was more about cultivating a mass production mindset that was malleable and, and easy to manage and less about actually grooming these these critical thinking skills, intellectual character development in children. I mean, one can say if, if you're priming someone for a mass production environment, there is almost a degradation of intellectual growth and development and an intentional push to discourage any premature utility that a child might find that they could bring to the society within which they are raised. And I say premature utility, I mean, everyone Every one of us has an idea of how we like to contribute to society, and then somewhere along the way, those ideas are muted. And then we see that there are specific pathways that are available to us, and we try to force ourselves to fit into a pathway. Yet, there is always the ability and the, the choice to choose one's own path, but that's not what's communicated in school environments. Because in school environments, it's really about priming you 
as a unit of production. Because when you transition into the workforce, you are seen and treated as a unit of production, even in the language. I mean, my background is in HR. We talk about human resources. It's, it's, it's language that is very normalized, but when you think about it, it's dehumanizing, right? It's about how many units of human production do we need to kind of create value to the market at a margin. And this is still some of the language that we use in industry today. That language, though, is shifting with the digital revolution because with the digital revolution, we now have automation, we have robotization, we have actual machines that can do the work that we were sort of enforcing on people um, and sort of viewing people as machines, as these production units. We have real machines that are production units. And now we're trying to figure out, well, what do we do with the people that we treated as units of production now that we don't need individuals to kind of play those functionary roles. I want to talk about this a bit because when we think about school environments, you have children all within the same age category being taught by one teacher. There is very little insight into what you're learning, why you're learning, you know, what the meaning is behind all of this. And a lot of the times kids ask this. I remember even myself asking, well, why am I learning this? Like, why do I need to know this? And it's always brushed away. When you work in a mass production environment, when you're transitioning into work, a lot of the times that is reflected in that work environment. You know, the managers know and have a sense of direction and have a sense of the vision and why everyone's sort of working on their individual tasks to achieve that objective. But a lot of, a lot of you know, the individual contributors are still in the dark. And I think because of the different generations that are within workforces now, there's this need to be transparent and to be more open about what the strategic vision is and about the why behind every person's individual, you know, slice of the work that needs to be accomplished. But that's never something that people typically see within the scope of their work. And that's because work has been so parsed to, you know, specific manual tasks that you couldn't derive meaning from the work that's in front of you. You need someone to give you the bigger picture because the bigger picture is never all in one person's lap. You need someone to give you the bigger picture. Um, and that extraction of meaning from work that was introduced with the core revolution, it's shifted everyone's attitudes towards value, towards human value, towards value of one's time, where we put our time. Um, and that's something that I, I would love for us to re-pivot back into the appropriate position because as human beings, we need to find meaning in where we put our energy and where we put our time. And I think too many years have gone by where we've allowed ourselves to believe that what we do on a day-to-day -day basis is it's okay if it's meaningless. And it's not because it has had a negative impact on our mental health, which will be a later video. Um, but working in an environment where you don't get a sense of the larger picture, you don't see how your work contributes in a meaningful way, you don't feel the impact of your work, that's not something that was normal. We've normalized that with the Industrial Revolution because that was the best way to create large margin um, with minimal risks and minimal costs, by like parsing out the work into tiny, minute tasks. And so schooling was a mechanism 
to create a, a, a degree of complacency with the meaninglessness of tasks. And that was introduced with the subjects, the way one would orient around subjects. I mean, you would start something and if the bell rang, you stopped it, it didn't matter where you were in the process, you kind of just switched to the next thing. And a lot of this is conditioning to be okay with doing work where you don't understand the value, where the value in and of itself has nothing to do with what you're doing to contribute towards it. So that when you go into the workforce, if that same environment is mimicked, you're okay with it. And so when I say social efficiency, uh, I'm not being a radicalist. Um, I'm, I'm saying it quite pragmatically. It really was and is and continues to be um, a, sort of, a sort of grooming mechanism so that you're easier to manage when you enter the workforce. It's easier to manage people who ask less questions and have more threshold for doing work that has little meaning to them. And I, I also want to talk about the history of compulsory schooling that is very rarely talked about. Like when it was introduced, people revolted. No one wanted, like there were many people who did not want compulsory schooling because it further disenfranchised ordinary people and it further brought division into families. And there were acts of state violence that we never read about in the, in the history books. I mean, this is like very much hidden away, but if you read, there is a book, um, the book is by Bruce Curtis and it's called Building the Education State. It talks about incidents of state violence that was done to the population to force parents into sending their kids to school. We don't know about that. That's part of the history of education that we love and value so much. Um, and also, you know, there were many schools that were burned to the ground. Teachers were run out of towns by mobs of parents. If a, a teacher held a student back, parents would literally be breaking into the schools to take their children. So with the coal revolution came compulsory schooling. And the objective of compulsory schooling was never about the intellectual and character development of children. It was about molding social identity to conform to the requirements of mass production society. So why am I talking about all of this? I'm talking about all of this because I think it's important to understand the root of why compulsory education is what it is today. So that when we build towards a better platform for tomorrow's generations of children, we do not fall into the trap of, of making the same choices and making the same mistakes. The fact that a lot of us are ignorant to this history just speaks to what happens when we are only allowed access to one or two perspectives who inform us of the history of the past. And you know, history is multifaceted. There are multiple perspectives. And to understand history truly, we need access to all of those perspectives, not just the dominant perspective or the one that has the majority interest in you understanding your history a certain way. And this history specifically, I think, is important to each of us to inform the choices that we make about how we choose to educate our children for tomorrow. Our children are not going to be raised in a mass production society. society. You know, mass production is dead. It's not a real thing. And for those of us who are still working in industries that are industries of mass production, digital, the digital revolution is going to significantly shift that. And it's important that you prime 
your children for self-reliance, for independence, for resourcefulness, because you're not going to be in an environment, not even 10 years from now, that is going to provide you job security. Job security is not a thing anymore. And for those of us who, who still kind of cling to job security and cling to the capacity to do your specific tasks and receive a paycheck and sort of, you know, live your life outside of that, you're going to need to put a lot more upfront energy and upfront work in the digital era that we're stepping into. And a lot of us are experiencing that. You know, the unemployment rates that are the byproduct of COVID are a testament to that. These industries are, are being shaken. And I think that the recovery of these industries is not going to be a recovery with the idea of rehiring labor um, at the same, to the same extent. I think the recovery and the capacity to maintain, to continue, to even exist will mean a leaner workforce. So that doesn't need to be bad news, but it does need to inform the way that we make decisions around how we educate our children, how we reposition ourselves, and how we choose to engage with the job market today and moving forward. So this part two series was really talking about the, the actual objectives of modern day education, of compulsory education, the history around it, why some of that history has been covered, and what we can do, how we can arm ourselves with that information as we figure out ways to recreate and co-create our environments socially as well as in politically um, as it relates to education. And that for me, again, whether it's unschooling, homeschooling, wild schooling, I have no preference, but our education needs to repivot towards focusing on intellectual and character development for our children and giving them the critical thinking skills to be able to navigate and be self-sufficient um, in the world around them. And that world is changing rapidly day by day. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and until next week. Like no one's listening